Um, I invite you to turn to Romans 6. Uh, thanks to Graham for leading uh, and uh, alluding to the fact that this is our reading for tonight. Romans um, 6, verses 1 through 14, and it's on page 1132 of the Pew Bible. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master, because you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Uh, we're in the series of the church and particularly what should it do and uh, we've looked at uh, two or three uh, subjects already on that and tonight's one is on baptism uh, apologies to those of you who came expecting to hear Mez McConnell tonight uh, you get me for a second time I do apologize profusely for that Mez uh, was otherwise uh, unable to be here and called me during the week and asked if I could stand in for him and uh, since I'm, I'm using uh, the basis of Mez's book that he taught, uh, that he teaches on baptism, the one that we use in the Baptism Explored course here, I've just kind of condensed the contents of that for hopefully our edification. So baptism, what is it? In that very helpful study guide on the subject of baptism, Mez McConnell uh, quotes chapter 29 of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. And I'm going to put this up so you can can see what it says. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be to the party baptized a sign of his, her fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of him, her being engrafted into him of remission of sins and of his, her giving up to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. Secondly, it is those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Three, the outward element is to be used to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized. 
in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Fourthly, immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. So what is baptism? Well, as, as, a, as a credo Baptist church, that, that's what we would believe baptism is. What is it what baptism is not? It is not equivalent to salvation, nor does it make you into a Christian. You can only be a Christian by being born again, and that is by being spiritually born from above. To become spiritually born from above is an act of grace instigated by a merciful God, not simply human choice, either on their own behalf or even less so on behalf of someone else. Baptism, uh, as we practice it uh, with believers and by immersion, is classically described as an outward physical sign of an inward spiritual experience. It is a declaration of the spiritual state of the believer and a sign and seal of God's grace in the believer's life. We've already read one of them tonight. There are two other allusions to baptism uh, that are picked up in the New Testament, but from the Old Testament. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 speaks of when um, Moses is leading the people of Israel, or the Hebrew nation, because they're not the people of Israel at the time, as they're, as they're leading the Hebrew nation through the Red Sea, he talks of baptism being in that sense a sign of judgment. Uh, that the waters uh, come down over the pursuing enemies of God's people and it closes off in judgment um, any harm that can be done by them. We've seen it in terms of purification in Naaman's leprosy and uh, Peter writing in his first letter chapter 3 makes the allusion of Noah's ark pointing to baptism as the means of salvation whereby God rescues eight people from the judgment and gives them salvation. So in the Old Testament into the New. So by the time John the Baptist comes on the scene and is, is calling out for people to repent and to be baptized, uh, they already have by that time developed a system whereby it will be by immersion, full immersion, um, and it will be seen as a sign of purification. It will be a means of salvation, and it will also be a sign that marks um, their release from the judgment of God. So why should we be baptized? It's a good question. Um, let me give you some answers. I don't say suggestions because I really do believe that these are the answers. Uh, and, and though some of you may want to debate them, um, I want you to debate them with me in Scripture, not just from your own ideas or from your church tradition or from the desire that your parents maybe have instilled upon you over time. Why should we be baptized? Well, Matthew 3 and 13, again, uh, it's John the Baptist, but when Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, uh, in Luke 3 and 21, uh, we read there that all the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And that voice that we spoke of this morning, confirming who Jesus is as the Son of God, the one in whom the Father is well pleased, is, is, is affirmed. So we should be baptized because Jesus was. Sound like a good enough reason? Secondly, we should be baptized because Jesus commanded it. Uh, it's there in our verse of the year, um, printed on the front of the bulletin, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, now as, as Baptists, as Creed of Baptists, we might want to say, you were absolutely up for that baptizing stuff because uh, that's what we do. But, but the Great Commission says, and also to teach those who are baptized to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. So there's another aspect to that, observing what Jesus would teach us, and, and that's part of the Great Commission. So we can't, we can't sort of tick the box there. Well, we do the Baptist bit, or the baptizing bit, and leave out that thing about becoming obedient to everything that Jesus teaches us. But that's for another sermon somewhere. It's not quite the focus of tonight. Um, we should be baptized because the early church practiced it. Uh, it's great when people appeal to church tradition. Do you know, we've never done that before. Um, we haven't, or we've always done that. We have. Uh, you, just, you just keep appealing. I love the people who appeal to tradition because that allows us to appeal right back to where the tradition started in the New Testament. When some people say, you know, we've never done that before, they mean within the last 50 years, or we've always done that. They probably mean within the last 20 years, or maybe in a church like Charlotte Chapel, within the last 200 years. But of course, the church didn't start 200 years ago, did it? It's been on the go a long while before Charlotte Chapel appeared on the scene to start setting the trends of how church should be in its perfection. I say tongue-in-cheek, obviously. So we appeal to the tradition. We go right back to Scripture. And the early church practiced believers' baptism. Well, that's the way I read it. Let me just give you a few examples of the ones that we'll ask David to put up. I won't read all of them to you. But throughout Acts, we've got a series of scriptures. Peter is saying in Acts 2 to the group of people who hear the message on the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Those who heard this message, uh, verse 41, were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Uh, in chapter 8 of Acts, Ethiopian eunuch uh, and Philip uh, as they travel along the road, they come to some water. Uh, Philip has explained the way of salvation to the eunuch. The eunuch says, look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Now, he's, he's completely outside the realm of what's been happening so far. And Philip can't think of any good reason why he shouldn't be baptized. So um, he gets baptized. Uh, Peter also orders later on, a couple of chapters later on, that they get baptized in the name of Jesus. He doesn't, he doesn't just... Um, say to the people around Cornelius' household, look, it's optional for you. He orders them to be baptized. So he says, look, you're a Christian now. Get in the water. Get baptized in the name of Jesus. And again, in Philippi, uh, Paul, Silas, the hour, uh, the night that the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Just in case some of you think that's an allusion to children getting baptized, there is no reference there to the age of the people involved whatsoever. And I think we also uh, should be baptized because it's a sign of our new life in Christ. We already looked at Matthew 3 and 6, where it's uh, confessing their sins. They were baptized by John in the Jordan River. That's John's baptism for repentance, preparing the way of salvation uh, that is to come through the Lord Jesus. And then in Romans 6 and 4 that we've already read, therefore, we were therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead 
through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Uh, we should be baptized because of that sign of our new life in Christ, and that includes the sign of our repentance, the confession of sin, and the saving faith in Jesus' finished work on Calvary, as well as his continuing high priestly role as the one who intercedes for his church before our Heavenly Father. And then another one, we should be baptized because it identifies us as a disciple of Jesus. Some people have referred to baptism as the badge of discipleship. Uh, we've already read that passage from Matthew 28 and 19. We should be baptized also because it marks the end of our natural uh, or old self in the flesh and the start of a supernatural new life in the spirit. I'm going to say a bit more about this later on, but that's who you are if you're in Christ. You're a supernatural being. You're not just a natural person any longer. And baptism marks the end, even though it might have happened sometime before, but it marks the end of our old life, our old natural self in the flesh, and it marks the start of a new life in the spirit. And that is a supernatural life. I remind you of verse we read this morning, 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and note the tense, he is a new creation. The old has gone, and the new has come. This is not some future prospect. The resurrection body is yet to come. But the new life in the Spirit, if you're in Christ, that's already begun here and now in this flesh. Let's read Romans 6 and 4 there again together. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Think about the implications of that for your old life. It's buried with him through our baptism into death. It's not going to rise again in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Is that talking about some futuristic eternal hope? No, it's talking about there and then in the here and now. You see, Christianity, becoming a Christian, is you're not being asked to reform your old self. You're not being asked to smarten up who you are genetically, who, who you are as the person who inherits the traits of your family characteristics. You're not being asked to smarten that up. You're, asking, you're being asked to, to give that up, surrender it to Jesus, so that that might die and a new spiritual life in Jesus might be raised. And baptism is symbolic of that. And then I think it's finally in my notes. Yeah, finally, I think we should be baptized because, you know, it's just a very gospel-focused thing to do. It's just, it's just the right thing to do. Uh, you may want to turn to uh, page 1155, um, 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and let's read a few verses from there. 
the apostle says, what I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, the facts of the gospel recorded for us there are that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 3, second part. That he was buried and that he was raised back to life on the third day according to the Scriptures. Verse 4. And we know that these facts are true because after he was raised from the dead, he appeared to, first of all, Peter, uh, verse 5, the 12, verse 5b, and to more than 500 others, verse 6, first part. And more than anything else that it may represent, baptism is a symbol of our participation in and connection to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why I say it's just such a gospel thing to do. And with all sincerity, um, an openness to other people's points of view, I cannot for the life of me think why people wouldn't do it in the church and do it this way. Now that seems to be the biblical reason why we should be baptized. Um, but when should we be baptized? Victor Jack, uh, in his study on baptism called Believe and Be Baptized, um, it's available in the stairwells uh, currently free of charge. I'm, I may review that policy. Um, every now and again, Brian Shari comes in the office and says, Rodney, uh, the Believe and Be Baptized uh, magazines, uh, booklets, they've all gone again. So I order another 50. I'm going, how long since you had the last 50, Brian? Oh, it's a few months ago. And I went, well, we've only had two people baptized in that time. So I have a sneaky suspicion that there's actually a Peter Baptist sneaking in here and pension our booklets on baptism. I, I've no idea. If you're taking them and using them, that's great. But, but um, it, the number of people getting baptized is completely disproportionate to the number of books that we give away free of charge. Uh, so uh, I may change policy on that and charge you for them in the future. So if you want to get one tonight, this is your last chance. But he, he uses um, uh, an illustration in his booklet on, on it's kind of six stepping stones across a river as a picture of spiritual steps that ought to be taken in connection to baptism. Let me present these to you. Step one is that we need to be confronted with the truth. Uh, you shouldn't be baptized before you're confronted with the truth. On the day of Pe Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2, you may actually want to turn to Acts 2 just now because we're going to make a few references to that. It's on page uh, 1093 in the Pew Bible. Um, 1093 the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and pre Peter stands up um, with the remainder of the eleven and he preaches uh, and he confronts the people with the truth first of all he confronts them with the truth about Jesus he tells them that Jesus was more than just a man that he is the son of God he's the promised Messiah he tells them the truth about Jesus' death, that it was no accident, but it's part of our salvation, part of the foreordained plan that God has put in place. Jesus died not only for you, but he died in place of you. It was your death he died. 
You and I deserve to die for our sins, but Jesus was our substitute, a holy, perfect, sacrificial lamb slain to save you and me from our sin. That's the truth about Jesus and his death. Uh, He also tells them about the truth about his resurrection, that it was a real physical experience. Men crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 2 and 24. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And that has huge implications for us if we say that our old sinful self is dead with Christ. I can't remember where I got this quote from, but I think it's absolutely brilliant. The prince of life took on and conquered the prince of death. Hallelujah. Peter also confronts him about Jesus' exaltation, whereby everything is placed under his control. Remember when he comes to his disciples, there at the end of Matthew's gospel, that as they come towards him in that place in Galilee that he's told them ahead of time that they should meet him at, as they come towards him, some and they worship him some doubt. And when he sees the doubting, he says, look, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God, verse 33 there in Acts 2, and he now awaits the time when God's promises will be fulfilled. The time is coming when Jesus will rule the world in peace and righteousness, and everyone will know that he is Lord to the glory of God father that's the truth about jesus his death death his resurrection and his exaltation but peter also confronts his audience about the truth about themselves and it's a truth that you and i need to have presented to us prior to our baptism the first truth is simply this they are sinners and they are sinners who are guilty of the death of jesus And that's no more less true for you tonight than it was for that audience 2,000 years ago. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm speaking to you as an individual now. You're a sinner in the eyes of a holy God. And you killed Jesus. You're guilty of his death. You put him on the cross. And you say, well, I wasn't there. You're as guilty as if you had been, by implication. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless, and there is no one who does good, not even one. That truth is just a great leveler because in my mind, in your mind, you might think, you know, some people are really bad people, bad, bad sinners. But I'm a really good person. By nature, I'm a really helpful, trusting, trustworthy, kind, benevolent, generous, happy. Nope, 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 nope. Sinners. All of us, all of us sinners, without the capacity to seek God, without the capacity to understand God, all of us are guilty of killing Jesus. That's the first truth. The second truth is that because of that, 
they must repent. Repentance precedes forgiveness. It precedes the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit, verse 38. Jesus said that unless you repent, you too all will perish, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Paul declares in Acts 17, uh, 30 through 31, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising Jesus from the dead. All of us fall short, and all of us must repent. Jesus himself says, you know, I know there are people who are going to hang around church during their lifetime. And on the last day, they're going to say to me, but Lord, didn't we do X, Y, and Z in your name? And Jesus himself says, I will have to say to such people, depart from me because I never knew you. And you know what? You can actually get signed up on a church register, membership role, um, without much evidence of repenting. But you can't enter the kingdom of heaven without repenting. You can't become a Christian without repenting. Because everything, humanly speaking, that is me and is you is inclined to go away from God. And God says, the truth is, you can't make it. So you've got to turn around and start walking back towards me. And the third thing is that they must call. Acts 2.21, look at it there. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I wonder, have you ever heard the cries of someone who's drowning? I hope not. Help me. Save me. Help me. The cry must be, Lord, save me. Do you know at times of revival, historically, um, and even here in Charlotte Chapel's ministry, there have been times when, as the preacher has been preaching, and people come under the sound of the conviction of the Spirit, the heart cry goes out, help me, from a penitent sinner. Faced with the truth, that we're responsible as sinners for killing Jesus, that we must repent, Lord save me must be the sincere and urgent cry of the penitent sinner's heart. And then, another truth, they must be baptized. Acts 2 and 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christians must be baptized in order to show that their past has been crucified and buried and that they have begun a new life in Christ. That's the first step. Second step, convinced by the truth. When Peter preached the truth about Jesus and the truth about his audience, the Holy Spirit hammered the truth into the hearts of the people and they were convinced by it to the point of being convicted. Now that's where a lot of people get stuck. They may have been confronted by the truth, but are somehow able to switch off the convicting voice of their conscience, and they don't proceed any further. 
it's just come to my mind. I was sharing the gospel with a former work colleague um, in industry. You'll be glad not to hear, not the church. Um, they came to the place where, under the conviction of the Spirit, I really thought they were just going to step out of darkness into light. And he switched off the voice of conscience and said, no, I can't. That close. That close. Some people get stuck there. I'm sharing the gospel with a man who's dying with cancer. He's got less than 48 hours to live, and I'm pleading with him to put his trust in Jesus. He's heard the gospel umpteen times before. And on that night, I'm saying, Ian, just trust him. We both know you're dying. And you've resisted all your life so far. These words run cold in my heart, even as I repeat them to you. He said, if there's a hell, I'm going to take my chances. Some people just switch off at that point. Confronted by the truth about Jesus, confronted by the truth about themselves, they, they switch off and they don't go into that place of being convicted by it. The third step is that you must be concerned about the truth. Because those who are convinced and convicted by the truth will certainly want to know what to do about it. Peter's hearers cry out, what shall we do to be saved? And that's the cry of a troubled spirit of a sinner whose heart has been awakened by the truth. And you know there's only one cure for such a person? If someone ever cries that out in your presence, please don't give them pious platitudes. Because what they need to do is they need to turn in repentance to Jesus. They need to confess their sin and their need of salvation. And the step four will then happen. They'll be converted to Jesus Christ. We've already considered that the only hope for enlightened lost sinners is to first of all repent. That means a change of mind about themselves and about God. It starts with a change of mind that soon leads to a change of direction in life away from sinful pursuits towards God and His better way of living. They have to call. We've just read, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. There are many examples in the Gospels regarding people who called out after Jesus for mercy and none were disappointed. One of my favorites is, is, is blind Bartimaeus. Remember how Barty's sitting at the side of the road and Jesus comes past? And he hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by and he says, I want, I want to meet him. And the crowd says, shut up, Bartimaeus. doesn't want to see you. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd try to quieten him down, tell him all sorts of reasons why he couldn't get to Jesus. He just cries out all the more. Do you know, if you're really a penitent sinner, you're not going to be put off by the crowds. You're not going to be put off... If an invitation is given for you to come to the front in repentance and to receive Jesus, you're not going to be embarrassed. You're just going to get out of your seat and you're going to come straight down there and you're going to put yourself right with Jesus. You have to call and you have to receive. In verse 41, we read that the people accepted or received the message. Now, it's important that you and I receive the spoken word, but we also have to receive and accept the living word, Jesus himself. It's not just to accept the Bible and its truths, but it's to get through the Bible that every page brings me to Jesus. It's to get to the Jesus of the Bible that I might know him personally. And John 1 and 12 tells us there that yet to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them right to become children of God. But also promised the gift of the Holy Spirit to give us the necessary power to live the Christian life. 
It's impossible to become a Christian. You've heard me say this before. It's impossible to become a Christian without the activity of the Holy Spirit. Do you know it is equally impossible to live a Christian life without the Holy Spirit's power and presence? You can live a reformed life. You can live a smartened up, more pious version of the old life without the Holy Spirit. But you cannot live the Christian life without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And the fifth step is confessing Jesus Christ. And we can confess by our lips. Uh, Romans 10 and 9 is a favorite verse of mine. Confessing Christ as Lord, we are saved by grace divine. Old children's chorus. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You confess it with your lips and you're saved. We can confess him by our lives. Philippians 1 and 27 but whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whenever I come, whether I come to you and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Um, some years ago, Jeanette and I lived in, in a bungalow in Orkney, and there was a young couple moved in kind of diagonally across the street from us. And um, I knew that he had a, a kind of um, executive job with the local council authorities. But we didn't know what she did um, uh, until I met her one day in the supermarket. And she was on the checkout uh, doing the beep, beep bit for me. And, uh, and I came home and I said, oh, I've met our new neighbor. And I said, she's, she's just an amazing Christian lady. And Jeanette says, how do you know she's a Christian? Well, I've not had a dialogue with her yet, but I know she's a Christian. And I told Jeanette that she was just the most amazing checkout lady I'd ever met in my life. And I just, I just something clicked, and I went, ah, oh, she's a Christian. And, and uh, very shortly after, they came across, and, and absolutely, they were, they were both part of one of the churches of Scotland in the town, and, and lovely Christian couple. But I knew that before she told me, because her life confessed Jesus at the supermarket checkout. Paul, to the church in Ephesus, says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So by our lips, by our lives, and by being baptized. Baptism, as I see it, isn't optional in the New Testament. Uh, it was most certainly practiced by full immersion. It always followed repentance of sin the reception of the Holy Spirit and salvation in Jesus. It is a command of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, to head over everything to the church. And step six is that we need to continue in Christ. After our baptism, we're called to continue to follow humbly, obediently, not just living a good, pure, and moral life, although this is part of it, but we're called to live as faithful witnesses and vocal witnesses at that as bearers of the light and truth to others so that in turn they can hear the gospel and be given the opportunity to respond. So how should we be baptized? Well, the Christian church has various traditions, sprinkling of water on the forehead, pouring water over the body, immersion of the whole body in water. Let me just read to you, and you make up your own minds. I'm pretty stuck on my view. Um, let me read some verses of Scripture in relation to the biblical testimony regarding baptism. i just put these up, David, as I come to them. As soon as Jesus was baptized... He went up out of the water. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, 
Now John was baptizing at Aeon near Salem and there, because there was plenty of water. And then Acts 8, 38 through 39. He gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized them. And then they came up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch did not see him again but went on his way rejoicing. So in conclusion, so what? Is it really all that important whether or not a person gets baptized or by what means? Well, my ministerial colleague, Mez McConnell, thinks it is. And so do I. We definitely agree on this point. You see, when we became Christians, you and I, we handed our lives over to Christ. But we also handed them over to the teaching of the Bible. I did not hand my life over to the traditions of the church or my family or even my godly parents. I handed my life over to the teaching of the Bible. And what that means for me is that if there is a clearly defined principle, a law or command in Scripture, then it just boils down to a simple matter of obedience as we seek to follow it as closely as we can. Jesus says in John 14 and 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Let us pray.